The flight deck is made possible by the generous donors supporting the Museum of Flight. You can support this podcast and the Museum of Flight's other initiatives across the United States and the world by visiting museumofflight.org slash podcast. Hello and welcome to The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. I'm your host, Sean Mobley. As we celebrate the opening of our new temporary exhibit, Stranger Than Fiction, The Incredible Science of Aerospace Medicine, this episode marks the beginning of a two-part series featuring Hank Davis, a Museum of Flight docent and former flight surgeon on the USS Coral Sea, who is one of the many featured stories in the exhibit. Today's episode is all about Hank's training and first experiences aboard ship, and how a medical team tends to the needs of thousands of sailors and aviators aboard an aircraft carrier. Well, I always had a super interest in aviation ever since I was a little kid. Uh, I was one of those that built lots of models and uh, all the way up through my teen years. When I uh, went through college, I I did pre-med and got accepted to medical school uh, in 1958. And at that time, just coming off the Korean War, uh, all medical students were required to join one of the service reserves if you didn't want to be drafted during your medical school years. So... I chose the Navy. Uh, I uh, had an uncle who was in the Navy, and I, I sort of admired, uh, you know, that service. And uh, I was commissioned a Navy ensign in December of 1959. That reserve status was very beneficial because uh, it allowed me during the summer months of medical school to work at a naval hospital. And while there, I met uh, a number of Navy doctors who were uh, former flight surgeons who were now specialists in some other field. And they always talked so lovingly about, so uh, excited about uh, their days as a flight surgeon and how wonderful that career path was. So uh, it, it was a pretty, pretty easy choice for me. Um, when I graduated from medical school in 1962, I uh, did a naval internship. Uh, that was what was called in those days a rotating internship. So you you got a, a, a bit of each specialty and uh, the Navy was interested in teaching you how to do things. They visualized you being on a ship somewhere as the only doctor and they wanted you to have some competency to to uh, do hands-on stuff. That uh, that really suited me well. I loved learning procedures. The other real benefit for me was uh, being a naval reservist. I was able to finagle my way into the uh, low-pressure chamber and the <laughs> uh, ejection seat trainer. And with those two qualification cards, I uh, got a couple of rides in a T-33 from my... Uh, next door neighbor uh, at school. He was a Marine Reserve pilot. I, I was really absolutely convinced then that uh, that was the career path I wanted to do. Our internships in those days were 
36 hours on and 12 hours off, it was actually 365 consecutive days of duty with every other night off. Uh, and uh, so it was a pretty grueling grind, but I did learn how to do a lot of stuff. <laughs> and then toward the end, they said, well, um, when you finish here, you have to make a choice. You can either go to submarines, you can go to surface ships, you can go to aviation. Well, that was a no-brainer for me. Uh, I went for the aviation and got orders to Pensacola, Florida in September of 63 to join flight surgeon class 104 uh, at the uh, Navy School of Aviation Medicine. So what sort of extra training did you have to do to qualify there? Yes. On top of your medical school. Well, our, uh, it, I, I've got to say that flight surgeon training was about one and a half times as difficult as <laughs> medical school. <laughs> it, was, it was very intense. Uh, it was uh, five and a half days a week. Uh, it was kind of divided. Mornings were medical subjects, uh, one-hour lectures, and afternoons were military training. And uh, so f for the medical part, we had advanced classes, very, very intense advanced classes in cardiology, ophthalmology, ear, nose, and throat, psychiatry, pathology, flight physiology, <laughs> survival medicine, uh, aviation examinations, uh, forensic medicine, and uh, epidemiology, and then uh, triage medicine for mass casualties, occupational medicine to uh, uh, check on uh, the working conditions when we went aboard aircraft carriers. And we were, had a, a brief course in accident investigation. All of these were uh, formal lectures. Well, we started at seven in the morning with calisthenics. And then starting at eight, we had one hour classes uh, until noon. They always announced at the beginning of every class, uh, your choice of duty station is going to depend on your position in the class. There were 50 of us in the class. Uh, every Friday, we had multiple choice exams in every subject. And every Monday morning, they posted a little thing showing your position in the class. So it was very competitive and very intense. The afternoons, uh, military training, um, the first thing was uh, sort of officer candidate school in a, in a very compressed way with a Marine drill instructor. And we learned how to wear a uniform properly, which most of us didn't know yet. <laughs> and uh, we learned uh, to march and we learned to stand inspections and, and do inspections. Um, we had, uh, it was kind of the officer and a gentleman course, if you will. Uh, and that went on for uh, the first couple of months uh, we were there. I, I studied a lot. It was every single night I had you know, a ton of stuff to read, but uh, <laughs> I, I loved the challenge of it and I loved how much I was learning. All that in a year and a half, you said? All, all that in eight months. We, eight, we okay. Did, eight months was the, the whole course. Jeez. 
No wonder you say it's it was more difficult than medical school. That that sounds pretty intense. <laughs> Um, so, so since you were a flight surgeon, did you also have to take uh, basic flight training as part of the qualification? Yes. The, the Navy decided back in World War II, actually, that all of their flight surgeons needed to fly operationally. So you understood what kind of stresses the aviators went through. And so you spoke their language. So you knew when they were talking about G-forces or they were talking about vertigo or blackouts or uh, anything else that, that you knew what that was because you'd experienced it a bit yourself. Uh, air sickness, uh, all that kind of thing, disorient, spatial disorientation. Um, so we were put through starting in the, uh, about midwinter time. We went, our afternoons became ground school for aviation, we went through just like a class of cadets would go through uh, to receive basic training. Starting in the springtime, uh, I noticed in my uh, logbook, I started flying the T-34 in February and uh, flew that until May, uh, most afternoons, weather allowing. So uh, the goal was you had to be able to solo that airplane if you couldn't do that, you didn't get the pin on your flight surgeon wings. You were called an aviation medical examiner, and you could do exams on people, but you weren't going to be flying operationally. And they told us during school, whenever you get to your squadron, we expect you to learn their entire mission and, and if, if possible, in any way to fly those missions with them. So uh, we, we, we knew what we were what to expect. Can you talk a little bit more about the difference there between the flight surgeon and, and what did you call it? The aviation examiner. So as a flight surgeon, well, you, you are going to take care of the aviators and fly with them. And you would belong to a squadron. If you were an aviation medical examiner, you probably belonged to the base medical facility and you're, uh, you would be doing general medicine, but also you were qualified to do flight physicals. That's kind of the, the main thing. The other part was you didn't get flight pay. <laughs> As a flight surgeon, if we flew four hours a month uh, or more, we got flight pay, which was a pretty good, uh, nice little extra pay. Plus those wings. <laughs> uh, so after you completed all of that training in, in eight months, yeah. what was your next assignment? <laughs> Well, well, I knew uh, early on that I wanted uh, to fly in jets, and I particularly wanted a jet fighter squadron. Um, uh, my position was very good in the class of 50, and I was able, I had a lot of choices. I, I chose uh, Fighter Squadron 51, BF-151 it was called, uh, at Miramar, California, because they were just getting the newest, fastest, best airplane in the world, the Phantom II. And they were also going to be a, a carrier-based, so they were a carrier-based uh, group. So that appealed to me also. I, I wanted to to go on aircraft carriers. When I, when I got to the squadron, the VF-151, I found out that they had transitioned from the F-3 Demon, which was a single-seat fighter, also built by McDonnell, 
to uh, to the fandom. And so for the pilots, it was the first time they had had that extra person in the back seat doing a bunch of stuff that uh, would would have sort of overloaded them uh, with the phantom because it was a little more difficult to fly. Um, so when I got there, they said, well, we're only putting second tour pilots in the front seat. You won't be able to fly this airplane that way. But uh, you can go to backseater school and uh, we'll, uh, you know, help you along with that. And that sounded fine to me. I just, I just wanted to fly in the airplane. So that was a pretty intense, uh, another school took about six weeks and a bunch of flights and uh, a whole lot of simulator stuff. And I learned about the, the advanced radar. Uh, they gave me a thick manual that was super classified uh, about the head on sparrow missiles that were, this airplane was going to have. And I learned to run the uh, navigational gear, which was new and advanced. And uh, uh, the backseater handled the radio, uh, radios and the navigation and the weapon system and the radar. And the pilot just, he did pilot stuff. So uh, we affectionately called them our nose gunners. <laughs> we didn't like that term. <laughs> So uh, anyway, uh, that that was wonderful. Uh, my my first day at the squadron, I maybe well, maybe my third day, I got a demo demo ride in a Phantom. Uh, they gave me a clean. They gave the pilot a clean airplane, no tanks, no no hanging on stuff on it, and he took off, pointed that thing straight up, and we went supersonic, going vertical. I mean, it would go, it would go through Mach One, going straight up. It was just so amazing, and uh, the, you know, it'd level off at fifty thousand feet and do a bunch of other stuff. But uh, I think it was my third or fourth day. I had my first carrier landing from the back seat, so things really moved along very fast there in the aviation part of. Had you already been in the in the chamber by then? Oh, yes, I I had a chamber qualification. I had to go in a special chamber, though, for the Phantom. They gave us full-pressure suits. Uh, when the Phantom was on the drawing board, it had a maneuver they called the zoom maneuver, where it could be going along at Mach 2 at 50,000 feet, and then you hauled back on the stick, and the thing would go up to above 70,000 feet. Uh, and... Uh, you had to have a full pressure suit because at that point the engines flamed out and uh, and then you had a relight on the way down. So I had a, a demo of that kind of hop in the pre full pressure suit. It's the only time I ever wore it. They, they spent, I remember it seemed like so much money then. It was the price of a new Cadillac. $5,000 was what it cost them to make those suits. And, uh, and none of us ever wore them operationally after you know, we learned to fly in them. You were flying as a, a radar intercept officer there in the F-4. Yeah. What other duties besides that did you have? So I, I found out when I got to my squadron that I, I didn't belong to the base medical facility, which had the dispensary and took care of all the general medical problems in the base, that I belonged strictly to the squadron. 
And that I was, uh, my highest priority were to, was to take care of their air crew and their mechanics and all of the other people that supported the airplane. When we were ashore, I also took care of their families. I had kind of a family practice thing with that, took care of the wives and the kids and, you know, got to know them, which was an important part of me getting to know the pilots, you know, to kind of know what their family situations were. I, I think I was very well received there. They, they all really liked having that special thing that they knew who their doctor was because when they went to the dispensary, it was just sort of potluck of whoever picked up their chart. Uh, when we were, uh, we started training up to uh, deploy to Southeast Asia shortly after I got there. And uh, so whenever we were at sea, then I had a whole other group of uh, duties to do. Uh, I, I managed to finagle flights from time to time in the Phantom. But uh, I was part of the ship's medical company uh, taking care of 4,500 men. There was one other flight surgeon. There was one general surgeon. There was a senior medical officer. He was supposed to give her anesthesia, but I don't think he ever did in the whole time we were there. He was a little out of date in his training, and the surgeon wasn't very trusting of him to do anesthesia. So. So we did almost everything under local or a narcotic drip, an opiate drip, uh, to to uh, do all the surgeries we we had to do. But part of my other duties there were to give lectures to the pilots, uh, all the things having to do with uh, survival if they got shot down in the jungle or venereal diseases they might pick up ashore, uh, and uh, flight physiology things like. Uh, Spatial disorientation and uh, G-forces and a whole lot of other things. So I, w I was an education program. <laughs> when, when I, uh, whenever I went forward, they said, okay, now it's time for the doc to give his spiel. And I would start to walk to the front and they would all start quacking, like, quack, 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 quack. <laughs> and that became my handle. I, my handle when I was flying was quack. So, <laughs> uh, and and uh, the ones I'm still in touch with still call me that. <laughs> so you were aboard a carrier, uh, the Coral Sea. People talk about carriers being like a small city. Can you talk a little bit more just about the general medical world on a carrier? Because you said yeah, there's thousands yes. of sailors aboard. Uh, just for context, so this is early Vietnam yeah. It was still separated by gender, so there wouldn't have been women aboard, or were there? No women aboard at that time. Okay. Yeah. And, and the, can, can you talk a little bit more about the just the general medical layout of a floating sure. city? You bet. Well, the, the Coral Sea was built as a straight deck carrier following the, uh, about the time of the start of the Korean War, it came uh, out. And then later, because it started flying jets instead of prop airplanes, they grafted a, uh, an angle deck onto it. So uh, was she considered pretty old at the time, or was she considered new? Oh, uh, well, they, they had started with the next generation, the Forestalls, and they were bigger and fancier, like the, uh, the Constellation and that group, uh, Enterprise. Okay. So their Ranger was one of those. They were, there were plenty of uh, bigger carriers by then, 
They only made three Midway class carriers. That was the Midway Coral Sea and the Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, but it was a good ship. And uh, 4,500 men, if they're all doing their job right, the, the ship is just a thing of beauty. We had underway replenishments to get oil and groceries and ammo and all that stuff when we were out in the South China Sea. Uh, but uh, yeah, it made a lot of black smoke. <laughs> Uh, that made it easy to spot from the air, by the way. That was kind of a good thing. <laughs> uh, so uh, the, the ships, the uh, medical department, we had a sick bay that had about uh, 20 beds, as I recall, but they were stacked hammocks, four high. And uh, they, of course, they folded up when you weren't using them and gave you more floor space. Uh, we had a small x-ray machine. We had a, an operating room, one. Uh, we had uh, a pharmacy, uh, we had a lab, and we had technicians to uh, man all those. Uh, I had uh, uh, about uh, 15 to 20 uh, really good corpsmen. Most of them were uh, advanced in their ratings, and they, they had a lot of knowledge and they had a lot of skills. They were just wonderful kids. And uh, so I used them any way I could that worked. And, and uh, they, they just did a fantastic job. Um, we had sick call twice a day, and, and there'd be a long line from uh, the, uh, the sick bay kind of up through the mess deck, and especially when we'd been into port and coming out, because uh, a lot of them had uh, diseases they uh, wanted to get cured. <laughs> so uh, sometimes that, that line stretched pretty far. I had a lot of other jobs aboard the carrier. Uh, I had to inspect the living spaces, the sleeping spaces for sa sanitary conditions. Uh, I had to uh, go on personnel inspections to see if there were people that looked sick when they were all lined up and standing at attention and readies. <laughs> and uh, I did uh, a lot of minor surgeries uh, and then, of course, uh, when we were underway and operating, uh, there were always casualties from the flight deck, usually lacerations, often uh, run over toes, things like that, or people that had been uh, blown against something from a jet blast. And we had uh, fractures. We had people walk into propellers. Two of those survived, by the way, that <laughs> we took care of on the ship. But uh, there, was a, there was a lot of... Uh, major trauma, and uh, I got pretty good at uh, repairing partially amputated digits. <clears throat> Thank you for tuning into this episode of The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. I want to particularly thank our donors. Thanks to you, projects like this podcast and the Stranger Than Fiction temporary exhibit exist. If you'd like to become a donor, there'll be a link in the show notes, or you can head to museumofflight.org slash podcast and click the yellow donate button. Come check out the Stranger Than Fiction temporary exhibit. It's open as of the release of this episode and runs through early 2022. Details on the exhibit and how to reserve your tickets are in the show notes. 
We'll be doing a series of public programs, many of which are live-streamed, so you can learn in the comfort of your home in support of the exhibit as well. A link to the museum's calendar will be in the show notes. Before you visit in person, make sure you head to museumoflight.org to get the most up-to-date information on COVID guidelines for museum visitors. And make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast app, as the next episode is the second part of the story, and you don't want to miss it. I I, I don't want to spoil too much, but we'll be talking about a time that Hank had to perform a life-saving surgery, and all he had on hand was a pocket knife, so stay tuned for that. Also, please rate and review the podcast wherever you downloaded us from, and, and share the show, spread the word. You can contact the show at podcast.museumofflight.org. Until next time, this is your host, Sean Mobley, saying to everyone out there on that good earth, see you out there, folks. <laughs>